Coming up today, how Russia is remaking Ukraine's internet in its own image and the pros and cons of Canada's bold new drug law. You're listening to The Wide Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Grace Brown. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Netflix announced plans to turn Squid Game into a reality TV show. Rather than killing hundreds of people, the show will pit 456 recruits from around the world against each other to win a cash prize of $4.56 million. It was also the week when Microsoft retired Internet Explorer, the web browser debuted on computers back in 1995. That's 27 years ago. And it was also the week when the WHO said it will rename monkeypox in order to avoid discrimination and stigmatisation. The WHO usually refers to two types of monkeypox. There's the West African and the Congo Basin clades. But scientists have pointed out that in the light of current outbreaks around the world, these references to Africa are unhelpful and inaccurate. And finally, it was the week when, at the very last minute, the European Court of Human Rights halted the chartered aircraft that was scheduled to take migrants from the UK to Rwanda. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has already said that preparation for the next flight begins now. I was going to segue into a funny question about the Squid Game reality TV show, but you've, you've kind of brought the mood down there a little bit, Grace. <laughs> but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, would anybody apply to, to go on Netflix's Cash Cow Squid Game reality TV show? Anyone want to fight to the death? Well, can I just say, James, in your fact, you say that rather than killing hundreds of people, it will hit 456 recruits from world the world, around the world against each other to win this prize. But you don't say maybe they do die... <laughs> Um, what happens to these recruits? Because not all of them can win $4.56 million. So what? how do they sort out who wins it and who doesn't? Death. I'm sort of hoping, I'm, I'm imagining they're just going to kind of repackage something like Takeshi's Castle. Mm. Just a guess. Or like Total Wipeout or whatever it's called. So some sort of hijinks and shenanigans, but just not murder. Because, I mean, it would, it would make interesting television, but also a lot of lawsuits. Well, I, yeah. we'll find out, won't we? There's only one way to find out, Matt. It's to apply to die. All right. All right. See you, everyone. <laughs> uh, what did we learn this week? Matthew Burgess. This week, I learned that the first McDonald's drive-thru opened in January 1975. Um, and when it did, it was a small hole cut into the wall of a franchise in Arizona. Um, the creator did this to attract soldiers. So at the time, a local rule said that soldiers couldn't wear their uniforms in public. Um, so essentially, they couldn't get out of their car to go into a restaurant or a McDonald's or get food or go shopping or do anything. Um, so yeah, this drive through was allegedly created um, to attract soldiers and uh, yeah, see if they wanted to get a McDonald's. I'm loving it. Great fact, Matt Burgess. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what you got? So this week I learned about a Victorian scientist who built a device to predict the weather using leeches. So this was in 1851 and a scientist, I mean, scientist, maybe in inverted commas here, um, called George Merriweather built what he called the Tempest Pro 
Prognosticator, which consisted of, which is a brilliant name, and it consisted of 12 small glass bottles and each one held a leech and some water at the bottom. And what would happen is when the air pressure dropped, you know, signifying bad weather was coming, leeches would rise out of the water column and at the top of the bottle they would dislodge this uh, pin that would trigger a bell to ring and indicate a storm was on the way. And they, they had 12 leeches, so, you know, if one leech was off, then you'd say, oh, maybe four, five or six bells are ringing. The leeches are probably predicting bad weather. So there you go. Leech weather. Can I just... Yes, Grace. He has... Uh, it's like that nominative determinism thing. His name is George Merriweather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did think that, yeah. <laughs> It'd be better if his name was like George Stormyweather, but it's, yeah. still, it's still pretty close, yeah. So we've gone from leeches floating in 1851 to the BBC weather app in 2022 but maybe we should try this out does, does anyone have easy access to a fairly large supply of leeches i don't know where you'd go looking for i actually am near a reservoir so maybe i should go wading but um well I, I i was reading around this and they used to send out young women with their kind of ankles exposed to go go and wade through water and then come back with leeches because i, I don't think they last that long so they just need like a constant <laughs> supply of leeches but i tell you nowadays it's very difficult to find leeches even if you're looking get your get your ankles out matt and go for a wade we'll see what you come back with wasn't the past weird? Anyway, our first story takes us to Canada. Matt Reynolds, tell us some more. Yeah, so this is a story from Grace. And you've been following some big changes around Canada's drug laws. It could have pretty significant impl- implications for how the country you know, treats drug use. So tell us what's happening. Um, yeah, so basically, um, recently, Tuesday, March, uh, sorry, May 31st, the Canadian government made a ruling that was the first of its kind in the country. Um, and basically, they said that starting on January 31st, 2023, so next year, um, the province of British Columbia will conduct a trial that's going to last three years, in which people over the age of 18 will be able to possess up to 2.5 grams of certain drugs like opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine and MDMA without fear of arrest, seizure or charge. So basically, in essence, this is what's called a decriminalisation policy. So what exactly does decriminalisation mean? I'm guessing it's not exactly the same thing as saying that something is completely legal. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was a term that I think I didn't fully understand going into writing this story as well. Um, it's It's kind of a confusing term to try and think about, but basically it means... Um, that a decriminalized drug kind of resides in this kind of constitutional no man's land. It means it's not legal, but it's, like you said, not illegal. Um, What decriminalization basically entails uh, differs from country to country, depending on how they define it, you know, all the limitations that they have in their policies. But in essence, it means that possessing a drug won't result in handcuffs and a substance use disorder, which is the most important part, won't be treated as a crime. Or at least, as you were saying as long as this person is not carrying more than 2.5 grams exactly. of yeah. this drug. Yeah. So we've seen similar moves in a bunch of other countries. I feel like different versions of this story have played out in different places around the world. We've had it in, in Portugal, the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, the US most notably around marijuana. Um, what's motivating Canada's decision here? Is it similar to the other countries or is there, is there a slightly different story going on specific to Canada? I think specifically to Canada, they have a big crisis on their hands here, which is 
their opioid crisis. Um, it's one of the worst in North America. So this really, rather than some you know progressive policy, this is more like um, a bandaid on a massive gaping wound, a wound that's been bleeding for years and years now. Um, but basically, to go back a little bit in terms of where decrim comes from, um, sorry, I'll say decriminalizations, but drug policy experts tend to refer to as decrim just to, you know, save time. Um, but basically, they've long argued that the global war on drugs, which kind of started around the 70s, just, you know, plain isn't working, the writing's on the wall, it's done pretty much nothing but make it worse. Um, it fails to recognize pretty much that a substance use disorder is a medical condition. Um, it's meant that the stigma created by criminalization in turn means that people are, who have a substance use disorder are less likely to seek help for the condition or if they are overdosing, less likely to you know, call an ambulance or whatever for fear of being charged. Um, it means they're more likely to use drugs alone, which in turn contributes to higher rates of overdose. So basically criminalization um, disproportionately targets the marginalized as well you know, including, you know, black communities and indigenous communities. Um, it targets the unhoused and it really targets people with mental illness as well. And so, like I said, um, Canada in particular really needs to do something about this. And specifically British Columbia, where the trial is being held, is the epicenter of this opioid crisis. It has, like I said, one of the highest rates of drug related deaths in North America. Uh, the province actually declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency in April 2016. Um, and since then, more than 9,400 people have died from overdoses. Um, so, you know, they declared it a public health emergency, but I mean, that's basically not done anything to stem these deaths. And the research has actually shown that treating drug use um, as a criminal charge actually just leads to more deaths, kind of like I alluded to earlier. Uh, specifically in Canada, they've done some research on this and they've shown that people who are incarcerated, um, whether for drug related reasons or not, are at a substantially higher risk of overdosing upon release. There was one study that found in the two weeks after someone left prison, their risk of overdosing was more than 50 times higher than in the general population. And another found that one in 10 overdose dose, dose, uh, sorry, deaths are actually in people who left prison in the last year, which I mean, that's just a crazy number, one in 10 people. Um, one expert told me that jails are pretty much like a death sentence for people who have a substance use disorder. And, and others have pointed out that this criminalization policy basically exacerbates this kind of vicious, never-ending cycle of you know, poverty, stigma, um, discrimination and unemployment, all of which then makes it harder to step, stabilize substance use, which if you think about it, you know, on, on its face, criminalization is supposed to be helping people, but really it's just making people who have substance use disorders um, worse off in the long term. And there's this famous quote from the former Secretary General of the UN, um, Kofi Annan, who said that a criminal record for a young person with a minor drug offence, you know, like carrying 2.5 grams of a drug, can actually be a far greater threat to their well-being than occasional drug use. And also on top of that, criminalizing drug use has also been linked with higher rates of infectious disease spread. So about 30% of new HIV cases outside of the epidemics in sub-Saharan Africa are actually in people who inject drugs. And, you know, you mentioned Portugal as a place that's adopted a decriminalization policy uh, they adopted in 2001. Um, and then following that, they actually saw rates of HIV infections drop dramatically after they adopted the policy. 
and then not to mention even incarceration um, that also lends itself to a lot of disease spread you know especially HIV tuberculosis and now of course COVID-19 as well. So it seems like there's lots of evidence to point to to say that criminalization and in particular this kind of rampant persecution of, of drug offences that you know, we've seen in lo- lots of countries around the world really hasn't worked and has probably possibly had the, the opposite of the attended effect. But as you mentioned early on, we do have some countries that have decriminalised drugs or hard drugs for, for quite a while. So are they seeing a reversal on these kind of statistics that you were saying, you know, in terms of you know, death rates, in terms of accidental death and, and things like that? You know, but in, in a short way, do we know if decriminalisation works? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times about Portugal, and I'm sure much of the listeners know about Portugal's decriminalisation policy. It's kind of the poster child, I would say, for decriminalisation, you know. Um, and because the thing was, the thing is that a lot of countries actually have adopted some measure of decriminalisation, but really what experts told me is they've done it um, technically, but, you know, they've done it on paper, but not on the streets. And sometimes even police in places like Mexico, I think, they use a decrim policy to actually um, target people even more. So, you know, if you are carrying over the certain limit that they've picked, then they will use it as a way to um, put, it, put in even harsher offences for those people. But Portugal is often, yeah, held up as a place that's done it right. So they did it, like I said, back in 2001. And um, a common fear that detractors often cite around decrim policies is that it will lead to increased drug use. But kind of, I'm sorry, Portugal really shows that this, this just doesn't play out. Drug use actually went down in Portugal after they adopted the policy. Drug-related deaths, deaths dropped and the number of people who sought treatment for substance use disorders increased dramatically. Um, although it's worth pointing out, uh, not, not to take away from Portugal's resounding success, but um, something that is worth pointing out is that they brought in a bunch of other social welfare measures at the same time, like a guaranteed minimum income, which likely also had an influence in terms of you know, bringing up their, their public health policies. Um, but other countries uh, like the Czech Republic and the Netherlands have also brought in decriminalization policies, and they've also been very successful in boosting public health. Right, I suppose that's an interesting point. If the authorities are going to determine this new limit, although it allows some kind of ownership or some kind of possession as okay, if they perceive this new limit as even harder than the old limit, which was zero, then maybe all it does is kind of shift this burden to a slightly different place within the, I don't know, you know, the kind of drug-taking community or, or, or you know, whoever is kind of carrying these slightly, these amounts that fall over that, that threshold, threshold. And the people you've been speaking with have said that that might pose some problems for Canada's trial. And this, this 2.5 grams is a pretty small amount. So what do they say about this 2.5 limit? And does that mean that it's going to be hard for this policy to really have a meaningful influence on all those problems that you were mentioning. Yeah, so many of the drug policy experts I spoke to, you know, they lauded this trial as a good thing, a step in the right direction, but um, really the the technical details of it really fail it in in a lot of ways. Um, Just to point out a few of the other ones, first off, you know, it only applies, like I said, to people over the age of 18, when in reality we know that many people um, begin using drugs much earlier than the age of 18. Um, 
and plus a major portion of the drug supply in Canada is adulterated with benzodiazepines, which is a drug class that's not on the allowed list, which means that, um, like you said, police are going to be looking for loopholes in which they can criminalize people for not strictly following this allowed amount or allowed drug. So, you know, they could, you know, someone, they find someone on the street, they test their drug supply, which, you know, maybe they have opioids or something which is on the allowed list and then they find uh, benzodiazepines in there and then therefore that person gets charged. But then really, the, the, like you said, the main sticking point is this 2.5 threshold, which people are saying is just not enough and could actually have, you know, inverse effects. It could have really bad consequences. Um, and when they were drawing up this policy, they did the right thing and they consulted with the people who this is going to affect the most, which is people who use drugs. So there were a lot of people who are long-term drug users consulted for this policy and they repeatedly said, you know, we need 4.5 or a more than that. They actually said 4.5 grams probably isn't even enough. And this this makes sense because you think about it, people who are using drugs for a long time, um, especially something like opioids where tolerance builds really quickly, um, they're going to need more than 2.5 grams um, to sustain their substance use disorder. Um, and so, yeah, they submitted, when British Columbia originally submitted this uh, decrim request to the health authorities in Canada, they went for 4.5. And this was brought down to 2.5. And people, a lot of people were asking why it went down so dramatically. And it actually turned out that um, the the health authorities consulted with the police and the police put forward this 2.5 number, which I mean is just completely antithetical to what they're trying to do here, which is penalize this police space. So a lot of the experts I spoke to were like, why invite the police in here when we're trying to get them out? Um, So that received a lot of criticism. And, you know, they made the point that this lower threshold just doesn't reflect how people use drugs. You know, it's not a one size fits all. This is for this 2.5 is not going to apply to every single drug class, every single person's specific disorder. Um, And also it doesn't take into account um, really the root cause of the opioid crisis in Canada, which is um, which people may have heard about, which is um, fentanyl which has pretty much um, invaded all of the heroin supply on the mark on the illegal drug market in Canada. And fentanyl is this synthetic opioid that is actually insanely potent. It's up to 50 times more potent than heroin. Um, and because of this, it just kind of exacerbates people's tolerance. And it often means that people just have to carry more than 2.5 grams. And I suppose that one of the worries around this reasonably low limit is that in three years, when we get the results in this trial, or we get some indication of whether it's having an impact on drug use, we might not be able to say because we don't we don't have that counterfactual where there's there's this four point five gram limit or maybe maybe even higher. So it's hard to say whether this lower limit uh, might have been the problem, might have reduced some of the effectiveness, or whether it's a kind of sliding scale. So I suppose there's that sort of frustration that we might be about to head into, or Canada might be about to head into three years of a trial to which we can't be guaranteed if it's going to do the things that it it sought to you know do in the first place do you have a sense of how that might play out you know what are some of the pitfalls that Canada might come across should we still be hopeful that this trial will be effective even though it's got some of these like pretty major drawbacks yeah so number one people are worried that it's going to make it that the trial is not effective or at the end of the three years 
they'll look back and say, you know what, actually this was the wrong move. Drug use increased, deaths increased, all that kind of stuff. This was a a failure. We're going to go back to criminalizing drugs, which obviously is definitely not the intended outcome. That would be a really big step back. But people are actually worried, you know, beyond that, they're worried that this could make the opioid crisis worse in Canada and specifically British Columbia. Um, because it's going to potentially create an incentive, you know, this 2.5 limit, it might create an incentive for people to make the drugs more potent. Um, So therefore, you know, putting more fentanyl into the um, opioid supply on the illegal drug market so that people can get away with carrying um, lower amounts of drugs, um, which obviously is just going to exacerbate the the problem that's already existing in Canada. and also another another person pointed out that it really it's going to, you know, a part of decriminalization is to, like we said, criminalization really targets the marginalized, um, you know, like the unhoused, people with mental illness and people of color. Um, and this 2.5 limit is really just going to exacerbate that marginalization, because if you can carry under the 2.5 limit, it's likely that you're going to be probably more privileged um, than people who have to carry more than that. Maybe you haven't been using drugs for as long. Maybe you you are using them recreationally rather than to sustain a substance use disorder. Um, So it likely means that um, the police are still going to be uh, disproportionately targeting the marginalized. And one person I spoke to who is really in the weeds of this, they're worried that, you know, it could be the case that police are bringing weighing scales out onto the street and forcing people to weigh their drugs um, to make sure that they're like just below this 2.5 limit and the second they're over it you know they're going to be hauled in hauled into the police station and one of the biggest points is that why this why this policy is flawed is that it does pretty much nothing to address the root cause of the opioid crisis in British Columbia, which is an unsafe supply of drugs. So we mentioned fentanyl already, um, but fentanyl has pretty much commandeered the entire market there. And uh, one staff found that fentanyl was found in almost 90% of opioid samples analyzed by drug checking services in Canada. So the decrim move really needs to be combined with, uh, you know, regulation of the drug market, as well as, you know, wider access to things like like safe injection rooms and drug checking services. That's really what's going to be the the way to save lives. And people in the drug policy space think that it would be beyond decrim. You know, decrim is a great first step, but really to in order to save lives, we should be treating drugs like the way, you know, we treat alcohol or we treat smoking. It goes through the government. The government, you know, picks people who can supply supply these services safely, they get checked, you know, like it's not like you're going to be able to put um, dodgy alcohol on the market. Why are we treating drugs any differently? Yeah, and I suppose we've see- seen the success of places like safe injection spaces or needle exchanges or even, you know, drug checking stations. So there's lots of reasons to think there's other things that we can do around this that actually improve the situation. I'd be really interested to hear from any listeners that live in a country that has pursued decriminalisation. Maybe you're in Portugal or the Czech Republic or or the Netherlands, or may, or maybe you're in in Canada and thinking about how this new policy might affect you or the area you live in. Um, you can always email podcast at wired.co.uk. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. But to to finish up on this, Grace, we've we've got this trial that's starting next year it's going to be three years and the end of that we should have some pretty good data around how decriminalization works in a big country a big developed country with quite a big 
opioid problem. Should we be optimistic about these findings that this might just be the, the step towards more permanent policy? Yeah, some people people had mixed feelings on the fact that they're running it as a trial. Some people are worried that it's very specific to Canada, but because they're doing it as a trial um, and it's going to last three years, there's going to be another election in British Columbia before the end of that. And right now they have um, a, a, a liberal um, government um, in charge, but they're worried that it, in the election, the, the more right-wing um, uh, side of the election could actually come into power and get rid of this trial. Um, but on the other side of the coin, um, drug policy experts have pointed out that the fact that they're running it as a trial could actually be a really effective way of presenting to naysayers, you know, the cold hard evidence that this actually, you know, is working. It doesn't increase drug use, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like we, the best way of doing this is probably doing it as something that looks like a scientific study. Like we know scientific research works in a way to provide evidence, you know, cold hard evidence. So this trial model could actually be a really good way of, you know, uh, proving to naysayers that, that this actually works and this is the way out of the opioid crisis in Canada. And as always, there'll be a link to the full story, which is well worth reading in the show notes. Now, Our second story this week is about the battle for control of Ukraine's internet. Some regions of Ukraine have now been under Russian control for several months, and it's here that Vladimir Putin's influence is being most keenly felt. There have been stories of Russian officials handing out passports, the local currency switching to Russian rubles, and of TV networks being switched to only broadcast Russian propaganda. But this week, Matt Burgess, you've been looking at how infrastructure of Ukraine's internet itself is shifting towards Russia. If you were in the South Ukrainian city of Kherson on May the 30th and using an internet connection provided by a local company called Kherson Telecom, which is also known as Skynet, um, then things would have slowed down in the mid-afternoon. So at around 2.43pm, the connection went dead. For the next 59 minutes, people couldn't call loved ones, uh, find out the latest news or upload images to Instagram or get online generally. Um, And they were essentially stuck in a a short but uh, not uh, unmeaningful communications blackout. And when web pages started stuttering back into life at 3.42pm, everything seemed to be normal. But behind the scenes, a lot had changed. Uh, Now all of the internet traffic was passing through a Russian provider Um, and opened up to Vladimir Putin's powerful online censorship machine. Um, So since the end of May, around 280,000 people living in uh, the Kherson area and its surrounding regions have faced constant online disruptions as internet service providers have been forced to reroute their connections through this Russian infrastructure. And now multiple Ukrainian internet service providers, ISPs, are now forced to switch their services. Um, And essentially... Uh, This has been confirmed by both technical analysis and also uh, Ukrainian officials. So how is this possible? What what is happening technically? What was going on in those 59 minutes to reroute Ukrainian internet users through Russian internet infrastructure? It, It can't be as simple as flicking a switch. So there are a couple of ways that this uh, is happening, really, and it 
large elements of it come down to various different processes. Um, so it's worth pointing out that Kherson has been occupied by Russian troops since March. There's the uh, occupying forces there have put into place um, their own forms of not government, but leadership in the region. Um, and through this occupation, there is physical access. So troops are seizing equipment of internet service providers. So two of the biggest internet providers in Ukraine, Kyivstar and Livecell, uh, say that their equipment in Kherson was switched off by Russian occupying forces and they don't have any access to restore or repair any of this type of equipment. Uh, and essentially, once Russian forces have control of the equipment, uh, they can tell Ukrainian staff to reconfigure the networks to a company called Miranda Media, which is a uh, provider in based in Crimea, which Russia annexed and has controlled since 2014. Um, and I spoke to uh, Viktor Zahora, who is the uh, deputy head of Ukraine's cybersecurity agency, and he said that in the case of local employees uh, being told what to do, these ISPs are not willing, to, when they're not willing to help with the reconfiguration, the Russian occupying forces essentially can do this by themselves. And technically, this is done by changing a system called BGP to route traffic uh, or send traffic in a different direction. Um, and that direction is through this company, Miranda Media, which I say is based in Crimea. Um, and essentially, you can sort of think of it as in uh, the internet was flowing through Ukrainian pipes to begin with. Then during the shutdown, it wasn't flowing at all. And now it is flowing through Russian pipes. So the uh, Ukraine Cybersecurity Agency has added that they have told staff who have asked what they should do in these scenarios, not to risk their own lives or the lives of their families. And essentially that they if they if they're going to comply then this change is going to happen at this stage and it's not something that's worth them risking their lives over um but they also say that this is this situation is very unlikely to change in the region until uh, the area can be liberated by troops yeah so until the facts on the ground change this is the internet that people in Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine are stuck with. But the control of internet infrastructure in 2022 is about a whole lot more than just fixed-line broadband, right? So what's Russia been doing to seize control of and reroute mobile phone communications as well? Yeah, as you point out, a lot of people obviously get online using their mobile phones more than um, necessary laptops or desktop devices, and that's obviously uh, in in a wartime crisis situation that the people in Kherson are living in, they're, they're probably more likely to be on their phones and stuff than necessarily sat down at a desktop or something as well. Um, so in recent weeks, uh, there's been a new mysterious company that has popped up in Kherson and some of the surrounding regions. Uh, so images that have been circulating online show uh, this mobile company handing out blank SIM cards, which are essentially just completely white pieces of plastic with no branding at all. Um, so little is really known about uh, these sim cards or who is handing them out if it's a proper company if it's uh, just uh, a, a very sort of ad hoc uh, effort that's being created but one thing that does appear to be the case is that it's using the russian uh, plus seven prefix at the start of the mobile number um, so the local russian administration recently said that the area was moving to this prefix before these uh, sim cards started to be seen and videos reportedly show crowds of citizens gathering to collect the sim cards when they're being sold or handed out in sort of like public spaces um, because essentially they're some of the only services that are getting 
dating connections. Um, so on top of this as well, we've also seen uh, in some of the other occupied areas of Ukraine, um, we have seen uh, separatist mobile networks that have existed since sort of 2014 expanding their reach. So uh, there have been reports around um, the couple, a couple of companies in Dantesk and Lahansk that have been um, essentially using or adding the number of base stations for mobile phone uh, signals uh, in newly occupied areas. So trying to sort of essentially increase the coverage of these existing separatist networks that already uh, have been in place for a few years in some of the previously occupied areas. So back to the broadband side of things, what's happening on, on the mobile side is is quite small scale at this stage. Certainly Russia has disrupted the ability of Ukrainians to communicate using Ukrainian infrastructure, but it's not necessarily been successful on a broad scale at rolling out its own networks apart from when it comes to fixed line broadband. So what sort of scale is this now happening on in regions of Ukraine that Russia has occupied for some time? Ukraine has got a pretty uh, resilient set of uh, internet service providers and companies. There are sort of like hundreds of different small companies across the country that are keeping people online in January. Um, so when I was speaking to Zohora, he uh, said that there are around 1,200 different ISPs in uh, some of the occupied areas. And he says that uh, they understand that most of them are being forced to connect to Russian telecom infrastructure and reroute their traffic. Um, this was also confirmed by the uh, Ukrainian telecom regulator uh, who says that there are massive cases of routing of Ukrainian operators going through Russian networks um, and sort of on a on a technical basis, it's possible to see uh, how some of these connections are being routed if you're a company that can look at uh, overall internet connections and where traffic is passing and sort of independent companies have confirmed that this is the case as well. And around in Kherson on some of the networks that we checked, there are around at least six or seven providers that we looked at that are now routing traffic through this Russian uh, provider. But as you said right at the top... After that 59-minute blackout, unless you were paying really, really close attention, you wouldn't have seen anything change before to after. So why does Russia want to do this? And what has actually changed for people when, from when they were using the Ukrainian internet to now being on the Russian internet? This is essentially really about sort of information control and the ability to censor and surveil, really, and controlling uh, overall infrastructure, which during wartime is something that uh, is essentially another tactic that can be used to the advantage of uh, the Russian forces that have uh, moved into these areas. So around the world, while most countries only place very limited restrictions on the websites that people can view, there are a handful of nations uh, such as China and North Korea and also Russia that severely limit what people can access online. So Russia has a vast uh, system of internet censorship and surveillance, which has been growing in recent years as the country has tried to implement a sovereign internet project that cuts that cuts it off from the rest of the world. There is a blacklist of websites that are uh, not available to be accessed if you look at them, which is stuff that is dictated by uh, the Russian government and uh, essentially exists as part of their larger censorship regime. Um, and there's also a system in Russia called uh, the System for Operative uh, Investigative 
and activities, which is SORM for short, uh, that can be used to read people's emails, intercept text messages and surveil other communications. Um, and essentially by rerouting this Ukrainian traffic for a Russian provider, it means that uh, these web pages are uh, essentially can be blocked. Um, so people's communications can be monitored and there's generally more control over the overall population. And a concern that's been raised politically um, around areas that Russia now has quite firm control over is that what it might seek to do is is hold a, a bogus referendum um, to establish these regions as either part of Russia or as, or as separatist republics. And the more that Russia controls communications and day-to-day life in these regions, the more risk there is that, I mean, even if nobody votes in these referendums, that Russia is able to say that they're legitimate, that because it controls everything, um, that it's able to kind of bludgeon its way forward um, and take further control of these regions. And this is just one way in which Russia is attacking communications infrastructure in Ukraine as it seeks to get to a point where it might hold these sorts of referendum. Um, But it's also a bit of a new front in this conflict and something that we haven't really seen on this scale before, mainly because we haven't seen a war on this scale in, in Europe for quite some time. And there's a lot of sophistication behind all of this, even if Russia's um, sort of traditional war on, on the ground has, has been quite flawed. Yeah, so the overall uh, sort of infrastructure control is something that does matter and is incredibly important. And um, as you say, there is a relative element of sophistication around this and people that I was speaking to were saying uh, that obviously Russia has only got uh, a significant a, a limited amount of resources it can put into its uh, wartime efforts and like one of you wouldn't necessarily think one of those things would be creating a new mobile network operator to put in to put in place so it is one thing that shows it is definitely a key tactic and we've seen that throughout uh, the war since February so uh, there has been a huge effort on uh, Uh, the part of Russian invading forces to uh, control communications. Uh, We've seen the disruption or disabling of internet infrastructure all across uh, Ukraine. Um, uh, Russian missiles have destroyed TV towers. There was a big cyber attack at the start of the war against the satellite system, which had a knock-on impact all across Europe. Uh, And there's obviously been a lot of disinformation and misinformation as well. Um, Despite uh, frequent internet blackouts, Ukraine's internet has held up it's it's structured in a way uh, that it isn't possible to take down the internet internet of the entire country in one uh one quick swoop but uh, this control of infrastructure is something that is very sort of important and uh i think there are statistics as well that say around 50 percent of uh people in ukraine have experienced some um some internet blackouts or disconnections throughout the war and around sort of like there are there are thousands of kilometers of internet cables that are uh, not working in Ukraine at the moment because of either physical damage or disruption or control by occupying forces. So it is something that is seen as a very important uh, element of this conflict. And to understand why it's an important element of this conflict, you only need to look to Crimea, right, which was annexed by Russian forces, as you said, in 2014. And a version of this has been ongoing there ever since. So how has that changed 
daily life for people in the region and what clues can we divine from that as to how life might change for people in newly occupied areas? So the experts that I spoke to that have studied uh, what's happened in Crimea over the last few years say that there was... uh, but the invasion there was definitely different to what happened or what is happening now. It was less of a full-scale war uh, that led to the annexation. Um, and really, for in terms of the internet, there was more of a sort of like soft change in uh, moving everything to Russian services. So uh, shortly after uh, after some of the uh, annexation took place uh, in 2014, there was a new internet cable that uh, was built through the Kerch Strait between uh, Russia and Crimea, uh, which was the first sort of like direct in- internet connection in that way. And then traffic started to be routed through there. But then basically this cable wasn't particularly good. There were complaints that it wasn't very fast and uh, people playing uh, online games uh, actually were some of the most uh, uh, like uh, loudly complaining people about sort of this changing routing because the internet new internet service was terrible uh, and then essentially over time a second uh, internet cable in the area was built uh, which was completed in 2017 and, and at that point uh, the Crimea was cut off from Ukrainian internet in general. And now that people say that uh, Crimea essentially just has Russian network providers, uh, the experts that I spoke to that studied this have said that uh, in Crimea there is a, there are actually more websites blocked than in Russia because there are a different set of uh, political circumstances that are in that case. But essentially uh, this has led to um, yeah Crimea being uh, Crimea's internet being controlled by Russia and through this company uh, called Miranda Media, which is now the company that uh, traffic in occupied areas, other occupied areas of Ukraine is being routed through. And this company, Miranda Media, uh, is a company that essentially is a, well, very heavily linked to Russia's um, uh, main telecoms company. And it also, on its website, it openly lists sort of its partners as being the Russian FSB, the security service, and also the Ministry of Defense. And essentially, is uh, a bit of a, a front company in some ways for um, the, for Russian providers and Russian networks. This is a, a very technical story, but it's worth emphasizing the human impact of it, right? Just to wrap up. So this is effectively part of a wider effort by Russian forces to Russify Ukraine, right? To effectively wipe the country and its people off the face of the earth. Yeah, we are seeing Ukrainian forces fighting back in South Ukraine and they've had uh, successful gains from counterattacks in in the north of the country. Uh, But there are still large parts of southern Ukraine that are occupied by Russian forces and have been for a very long time, as is is the case with uh, Kherson. Um, And what we're seeing in Kherson, and you've already alluded to this a bit, James, is this is this internet control is essentially one part of a bigger package of things that are attempt that Russia is doing to attempt to bring the area into its permanent control. Um, Ukrainian forces are going to fight back in the, in this space and are going to try and recapture the areas they they tell me. But um, there are efforts already going on to to essentially incorporate the area. So uh, Russian officials have started handing out Russian passports in Kherson. There is a, a Russian bank that's allegedly meant to be opening in the region. As you say, there is meant to be uh, a referendum uh, taking place uh, over sort of control of the area. Uh, the area has also moved to Moscow's time zone by occupying forces. And many of these steps really sort of echo what has happened in Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk before it. Um, so uh, the people that I spoke to around this say that 
this internet control is essentially the next step or one of many steps that indicate a long-term occupation, at least from the uh, objectives of the Russian forces. We'll include a link to Matt's full story in the show notes and you can read all of Wired's coverage of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine on Wired.com. Before we wrap things up for this week, the podcast inbox has been a little bit quiet recently, but we had an email this week from a listener in Belgium, Matt Reynolds. It's been quiet, but we still value the the response of every single contributor, like this one from Jerome from Belgium, who wrote in about a story we had in the podcast about 100 million years ago, which was about... Uh, rooftop solar panels and how this is causing a kind of divided energy network in the UK. So Jerome wrote to say that in Belgium they have a central grid manager who basically maintains the grid and is a middleman between producers and consumers. And they were saying how consumers sign a contract with an energy producer and the government sets a kind of fee per kilowatt hour. And that the same energy producers purchase solar power back by individuals to inject back to the grid. So you basically have these like energy meters that turn forwards or backwards, forwards if you're using energy and backwards if you're selling energy. So you have this real kind of impact of, of saved money straight away. Jerome writes, from my point of view, the system allows the prices to be pushed down as much as possible. Energy producers purchase solar electricity produced by individuals at a very low cost and they have an incentive to use this solar electricity as much as possible, cutting down dynamically piloted energy plants are mainly fossil fuels so thank you for that uh feedback drone and actually drone goes on to say that this 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 basically helps the country even without you know helps the country reduce its kind of carbon footprint even without having this kind of complex local sharing scheme of um local energy producers or local energy um exchanges which is which is often the kind of solution posed in the uk because um maybe our you know energy network is not quite as joined up as it is in Belgium or it's not quite as um you know connected as it is in Belgium so yeah a really, a really good perspective to say that actually you can do this at a national level maybe you don't need to look to different suppliers and um do all this kind of fancy stuff to have microgrids and things like that so Thank you, Jerome, for, for writing in. Thank you very much indeed. And everybody else can and should get in touch. It's podcast at wired.co.uk. And if, like Jerome, you're listening to lots and lots of archive episodes of the podcast, because why not? Um, get in touch about those as well. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for this week. We'll see you again same time next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 